Oops, there we go. We'll be back in John chapter 6. Just the last couple of verses that we have left. And uh, we'll pick up with verse 59, John chapter 6. These things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that the disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that none can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. All right, so this is like brunch. After a, a controversial sermon at a church, right? Sermons have fallouts. People, they preach things boldly, things that they know are going to go against. Um, or sometimes they even know it's going to go against people in um, the congregation. But uh, sermons always do. And our passage details the costly, you got to put that in scare quotes again, fallout of Christ's teaching and preaching. Um, some of it was good. Some of it's not so good. And this is not just true of sermons, this is true of us when we speak truth. There's always going to be consequences. Um, and we need to ask God to give us boldness and wisdom when we, we uh, speak. Matthew Henry, he explains this chapter, these verses. He says, here we have an account of the effects of Christ's discourse. Some were offended, others were edified by it. Some were driven from him, others were brought nearer to him. That is a good description of a good sermon, right? That is what every sermon in my or most sermons should elicit in a mixed crowd of people. Some offense, right? Some encouragement. Some are driven away and some are brought near. And uh, so if you look at uh, verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Just trying to figure out, does this mean that he just kept teaching these things? Because I felt when I first went through this passage that Christ came to the other side of the sea and they had kind of met him there. And then he had given this discourse. Uh, But it could have been that they met him in the synagogues or he kept teaching this teaching. I'm not really sure which one's going on. But nonetheless, he he had taught these things. And um, and as a consequence... uh, his disciples say this is a difficult statement, right? His disciples. These were the ones, they weren't just, this wasn't just the, um, you know, the crowds that popped in here and there. And these were people that 
have been following them for a while at least, that were a little closer than just the, uh, the random sort of listener. Uh, so the disciples say this is a, a difficult statement. And um, here's again Matthew. Matthew Henry says this. So some translations say it's a hard statement. Matthew Henry says, Now when they found it a hard saying, if they had humbly begged of Christ to have declared unto them this parable, he would have opened it, and their understandings too. For the meek he will teach his way. But they were not willing to have Christ's saying explained to them, because they would not lose this pretense for rejecting them, that they were hard sayings. And that's interesting insight. In other words, what he's saying is they could have asked Jesus to explain what he meant by this. But instead, they just assumed. And they didn't, they didn't just assume uh, for, no, for no purpose. They didn't want to understand it. They didn't want to know what he meant. Because if they could say, oh, that's really complicated, that's really hard, I don't know what that means, then they can use that as a pretense for saying, oh, I don't think I agree. Right? And, um, and we all are apt to do that sometimes. Where we claim things are too complicated. But it's, not, it's actually not that we don't understand it. It's that we do understand it. And we don't want to align ourselves with that. And uh, it's like um, I have a joke that I think is pretty true online. Anytime someone says interesting online, they mean it's not interesting. I think you're wrong. But I don't really want to argue with you. <laughs> That's my you know, like you write this long explanation of why you believe this thing. Very careful scripture citations, people throughout church history. That's interesting. That means you don't want to talk about it. You disagree. So sometimes we got to learn to interpret um, what other people are saying. But most importantly, we need to um, know our own tendencies, right? Our own ways to try to get around teachings we don't like. And we all have them. We're no different from these men. We have their same nature that they do. So they say it's a difficult, it's a difficult teaching, Jesus. And this whole eating your flesh and drinking your blood thing. And they say, who can listen to it? Right? Who can listen? And again, that's, that's code. Who can listen to this? What they really mean is, I can't listen to this. Reasonable people can't listen to this. That's what they're saying. Um, they're saying uh, no reasonable person on planet Earth would ever agree with this sort of thinking. Eating flesh, drinking blood. I don't know what he's talking about. It's really hard. We shouldn't listen to it. No one can listen to it. That's what's going on. And that, that's what happens a lot of times. You find, find with... With all sorts of degrees of people. With mockers, they have this, um, when you're doing sort of evangelism, whether it's on the street or just workplace, you, when you get close to kind of cornering a person, not, not, not that you're even trying to, they have this method I call cascading, right? Like a waterfall cascades. And what they'll do is they'll ask you rapid fire questions. Oh, yeah? What about aliens? What about cloning? What about smoking marijuana? You smoke marijuana? God made all the stuff. They'll start asking you tons of questions, right? Like, so do you want me to answer these questions in the order you gave them? Or what are they doing when they start spitting out all that stuff? They don't, they're just saying, what you believe is crazy. There's too many unanswered questions. You know, I don't want to hear what you have to say. That, that's, that, that's the tactic right there. 
you know. Um, and, and I've seen Christians do this too. I remember um, this is how I used to treat infant baptism for a time, right? What about this? What about this? What about that? When I'm arguing with people and I totally don't want to hear their answers because what I'm really saying, I think these questions, they're like rhetorical questions for me, you know, like as I ask these questions. Oh, yeah. Why are there no examples in the New Testament? Bow, I got them. Right. It means you only can baptize believers. But I'd ask these questions. This is what these guys are doing, too. This is difficult. Who can listen to this? Ryle says murmurs and complaints of this kind are very common. It must never surprise us to hear them. They have been, they are, and they will be as long as the world stands. This is just the sort of results you get from sermons. Um, a, 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 a good sermon, a good teaching, should um, never have everyone's head shaking the whole time. Right? If everyone's like totally agreeing and with you, you know, when, when, especially when Andrew's preaching, there's some times where I'm just kind of frozen in guilt. I'll nod my head every once in a while and encourage him. But other times when he's getting close, I'm just thinking about the areas of my life I need to repent in and be made right with God. You kind of freeze up. And uh, it's, it's, normal, it's normal for us to see people be made upset by the word of God. Because the word of God cuts to our heart. Right? It's always dealing with exactly who we are. And that's what Jesus does time and time again. It amazes me. John 6 is... One of the passages that he does it more than any other passage where he's always like, God, you just want the bread. He's just calling them out left and right. Um, So we should expect these these murmurs to be in our congregation. When they come up from our own heart, don't be shocked. Just repent of them. Right. These things pop up in you. And um, instead of pushing them deep down, let them come up. Right. Let them bubble up so you can say, Lord, I know this is bad. You know, deal with your complaints, deal with your murmurs so you can move forward. God uh, wants us to not uh, be complainers. You think of uh, Philippians chapter 2. And then, uh, then Jesus, confrontational Jesus. He's so confrontational. I don't know anyone as confrontational as this guy. It's intense. This is a difficult statement. Who can understand? I, I know, I know. It's hard to understand. Okay, hear me out. Let me explain this to you. All right, so if you go to the original language, yada, yada, yada. It's a, very, a lot of people struggle with this, right? That's what we would say. That's what I would do. You know, my tendency is always to want to persuade and win through argument and laying out evidences. Uh, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 61. But Jesus, he knows that they're grumbling at this. He said to them, does this cause you to stumble? I mean, that is something else. Oh, that causes you to stumble? He's calling them out. He knows they're grumbling. He knows it's stumbling them. Right? That is a rhetorical question. That should not cause you to stumble, is what it means. This is bad. This is wrong. Again, He's being so confrontational. We need a God like that. We need a God that pursues. We want to wiggle away from conviction, right? We need a Lord that will pursue us like Jesus. All the way back to the garden. Adam, who told you to naked? Adam, where are you at? Like God doesn't know where Adam is. He always has these great questions. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Does this cause you to stumble? 
what if you see me fly up into heaven? What about that? Now think about what, what is he doing here? Um, he's, he's referencing his ascension that's going to happen at the end of the age. And he's saying, if this teaching about flesh and blood, eating, eating my flesh, drinking my blood is hard, how much harder will it be when I tell you I'm going to go back to heaven? That's going to be even harder. So there's a couple things to consider. First, uh, those who stumble at, at smaller difficulties should consider how they'll get over greater difficulties. That's why we, we want to train ourselves, strengthen ourselves to learn to accept the hard things of Scripture. Because things keep getting harder and harder as we understand what Scripture is teaching. And he's calling them out. This is really a small thing that I'm teaching you. Wait till, wait till I tell you that where I'm going, you can't come. Remember Thomas and all those guys are really confused when Jesus says it later in this gospel. When he starts talking about dying and resurrecting, all that stuff confuses them. Um, also, the ascension demonstrates the foolishness of their two main complaints. First... Uh, they're complaining about e- eating flesh and drinking blood. And I, I would too, if that's what Jesus literally meant. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he says here in a second that his words are spirit. But another reason we know it's not what he means is um, Christ has a human body just like ours. Right? He is human in the way that Adam is human. The humans can only be in one place at one time. Right? Christ's human body can be um, only in one place at one time. And it's at the throne, uh, the right hand of the throne of God right now. That's where Jesus is. Um, so this, this teaching means transubstantiation, consubstantiation. These things aren't true. The, the, the doctrine that teaches in the Lord's Supper um, that the substance changes uh, from bread and wine to uh, flesh and blood. Or if you're Lutheran, it, it's, it's, there's still two substances that Christ is physically in and around it. The Roman Catholic view actually makes more sense to me than the Lutheran. But they're both wrong because Christ's, bo- Christ's body is only in one place. He's human just like us. right? So it appears that he can do things like walk through walls. I don't know how that plays out. But he's still in one place at one time. And he tells us where he is. Even when he's coming back, he's coming back from the right hand um, of the Father. Uh, the other thing is it deals with, they, they had been complaining about, um, so in other words, let me back up. If Christ's body is up there, you can't be eating it down here. Right? It's in one place. It's not all over the place. It's in one place. And that's why Lutherans actually reject that, that definition, that understanding of Christ's body. Because they have to, to be consistent. Um, but also, his ascension uh, deals with their other complaint. Remember they said, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And he's saying, well, wait till you, I'm going to go back to heaven. And that will de- <laughs> you know, not only did I come down from heaven, I'm about to tell you, I'm going back to heaven. Right? This is the first time he really mentions that here. And it's going to develop more throughout the gospel. Um, but so he's dealing with both of their complaints. So Jesus is confrontational. But he's also loving. He's like, he's getting, he's undercutting a lot of their problems. Um, so then he says, uh, moving on in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 
So when our Lord says it is the Spirit who gives life, by this he means that uh, it's the Holy Spirit who's the special author of spiritual life, uh, our spiritual life in our soul. Um, it's, not, it's, not from, it's not from eating or drinking. It's the Holy Spirit is working on us. When he says the flesh profits nothing, by this he means that neither uh, his flesh nor any other flesh, literally eaten, can do good to the soul. Uh, Ryle says spiritual benefit is not to be had through the mouth, but through the heart. The soul is not a material thing and cannot therefore be nourished by material food. And then lastly, he says the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. By this, he signifies that his words and teaching applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit are the true means of producing spiritual influence, conveying spiritual life. Again, Ryle says, by words, thoughts are begotten and aroused. By words, mind and conscience are stirred. And Christ's words especially are spirit stirring and life giving. So he's explaining what what he was doing in that sermon. He's, He's teaching them. He is correcting them. Uh, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So this is a teaching that a lot of people uh, have trouble with. And that is churches are not just full of true believers. It's a mixed congregation. Even Jesus's church wasn't all believers. Right? Judas and then, and then in the kind of the wider group of disciples that were following him, clearly some turned back and didn't follow him. And Matthew 13 teaches this, and the tares among the wheat. Let me read it to you. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain... Then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Although both allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the, the wheat into my barn. So in, in churches, there, are, there always are going to be uh, unbelievers in our midst, right? Goats. And, uh, but we allow membership in the church based on a credible profession of faith. Right? We give a judgment of charity. It's not, it's not the Inquisition. We want to make sure you understand the gospel in that it more or less we see evidence, just basic evidence in your life. And one reason we do that is that uh, there's some that want to keep the church uh, regenerate. Only those who have been born again. And that's a big emphasis among Baptist church. I don't know how they do that. Do they have special glasses they put on that, that when that person, uh, okay, that one's regenerate, that one's not. You know, how, I mean, they have the access to the same things we do. Um, but one reason we do it is that we trust that the word of God will sort out a lot of that in this life. Right? The word of God will drive um, people out of the church eventually. 
right? Those that don't want to repent, those that refuse to have faith, they'll be convicted by the word and only bear with it for a season. And we see that in the parable of the seeds and the soil. That's another good example there. Um, But there will be people that will even continue into the church to the very end of the age, and they'll have to stand before Christ. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, many of you will say, me, say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name, done mighty, you know, prophesy in your name, done mighty works in your name? And you'll say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Um, so part of preaching is, is to build up the weak and to remove the, the leaven, right? The, the yeast, we do it by preaching. And that's partially what Jesus is doing here. That sermon he preached, that discourse that he had in the latter part of chapter 6, was, was cleaning up some of the tares, right? But we, we, can't, we, we only can do it by the preaching because the Spirit works through that on the person's heart. And we, you know, we just can't figure out who is and who isn't a Christian definitively. We just have to go based off fruit. Even when we excommunicate people, we're not saying they're not Christians, Excommunication is not saying that they aren't a Christian. What it is saying is that they're living in an open scandal and they're disobedient. And so we're not going to let them continue to participate and drink judgment unto themselves and benefit from the fellowship in hopes that it will drive them to repentance. So if they were saved before that and they went into this deep sin and we excommunicate them, they don't have to get baptized again. They're not getting resaved or anything like that. It was uh, excommunication was just one of the means God used of sanctification to discipline that person and bring him back into his fellowship. Because the reason excommunication isn't us saying that they're not Christians. The only only time we can say that is when they've professed something that makes them not a Christian. In other words, they say, I reject Christianity, I reject the gospel. At that point, we can say that if someone that's living in some sort of scandalous sin, like a guy you know, cohabitating with his girlfriend or something like that. Uh, We're not saying that. Um, But the word will drive those people uh, to repent generally before the end of the age. But the Lord um, wants us to allow there to be tares in the church, knowing that he's the one that will take care of them at the end. And then in um, verse 65, he, he says, For this reason I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Just a, a restatement of resistible grace, of God calling people to himself. Right? You can't make yourself into a Christian. You have to be called by God. Just a beautiful verse to remember. And just think of God's mercy in calling you out of darkness into light. Right? Adding you into this congregation, adding you to his church. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So as a result of the sermon and when he dealt with their complaints, a lot of people left. I mean, there was thousands of people, thousands of people that wanted to make Jesus king. Verse 15 of this chapter uh, reads, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. How things change quickly, right? These guys thought he was the greatest. Do they heard him preach? Do they heard him teach? And uh, him call them to repentance. This, this always blows my mind. Jesus 
Jesus isn't like men. We love numbers. We do. We want, when you go to conferences, especially in the ministry, people want to know how many people you're running at your church. Like they're cows. How many you're running? Running. Um, and I, I say the same thing every time. Depending on who I'm talking to, I'll say, oh, we're under 1,000 right now. Under 1,000, really? Yeah. This is under 1,000, right? <laughs> um, we, we want to have success. We want to have influence. And numbers means power, means money, means influence. Uh, but Jesus will not compromise. He came to do his Father's will. And he was willing uh, to speak the truth, even if it drove all those people away. All those huge masses. I mean, this is kind of a strange version of church growth. But it's the biblical version. And I've seen churches do the opposite. I've seen in church planning, I don't keep up with it like I used to, uh, but I had a lot of friends that would plant churches and get them up to like 300, 400 people in the first year or two, which is insane. I can't imagine how the growing pains to that. But um, they'd get hip bands and they would give away iPods. I remember one was giving away iPods. And it just blew my mind that someone would join a church because they gave you an iPod. <laughs> it seems like a youth group sort of thing to me. Uh, but they get these churches really big and they would always send out these flyers advertising their church and, um, and how their church is awesome and it's great and it's for real people that want real faith and all this, you know, this sort of stuff. And, um, and all these people would show up. But the people that usually are looking for a church um, are either they've just moved, but the ones that haven't moved tend to be malcontents. right? They're not really happy with their church. Um, and so they're, they're coming to another church and they come to that church. And for a moment, it's the most amazing church ever, right? They're like telling all their friends and, uh, you got to come this. It's, it's amazing for a moment. They spring up with joy. And then at some point they, they preach something and all those people take off and the church collapses and disappears. I've seen this happen four times. And, and then a new church comes in and sends out another flyer. Here we go again, right? I remember at uh, the big vineyard in Cincinnati, it was several thousand people, that they got a pastor that was just convicted that, that they hadn't been preaching anything with any edge to it. So he decided, this is his bold sermon, um, that he was going to preach that pornography was sin and preach it boldly, right? And I don't know what bold was by his standards, but I had a friend that was um, on staff there at the time, and they lost like 800 people over that. <laughs> this is 800 people left over that. And so we, it's easy to grow a church. It's not hard. Cool band, uh, good coffee. I'm sorry, Ben. Um, really, it wasn't bad. I'm just, it's just coming up again. Good coffee, good feel. Everything's got to be hip. Um, to encourage people, be all positive, only exhort. Don't convict. Don't deal with sin. Um, meet a lot of felt needs. Right? Make the church a social club. Right? Have, uh, I mean, we help people move in. And that, that's fine. I think that's great. But I know churches that have, like, they help people move. And they have this group to do this and this and this. And so soon the church becomes a purveyor of goods and services. Like YMCA has a class for everything. Churches start to have that. And those churches grow up. And they get big really quick. Um, and that's how you grow a big church. But who is real there? 
I mean, how much wheat is in that field of tares? Usually it's just a field of tares. And the moment you start to preach something true, you're going to get, you're going to get grumblers. You're going to get complainers, and you're probably going to get fired. And, um, and they would have fired Jesus if they could have. That's the sort of people here. They would have fired him. But Jesus, um, Jesus is bold. He's a man. He's such a strong leader. Verse 67. Uh, so Jesus said to the twelve, you, you do not want to go away also, do you? Again, I'm just going to keep pointing out confrontational Jesus. I have to in these passages. Are you going to leave? I think that's what, is it the New King James that says, oh, you want to leave too? Something like that. I can't remember how he says it. It's a little more stunning. But all these people are leaving and Jesus says, are you also going to leave? He's challenging them. It's a challenge. Discipleship is costly. Jesus is always saying, let the dead bury the dead. He's always telling people what Christianity is going to cost them. We think that will make people not come to our church. We think that will make people not want to be a Christian. I don't think that's true. I think people want to be at a church that has conviction and stands for the truth of God's word. I think people will stay. They say, I listen to some church growth experts every once in a while, um, and they all say that people leave because churches, uh, they don't know what their church stands for. What, they don't even know what their church's belief statements are. So, a lot, you know, anytime I go to a website when I'm visiting a church, if it doesn't have a belief statement on its website, I'm probably not going there unless it's in our denomination. Because why won't you tell me what you believe? Well, it's one thing not to have it on your website. It's a, a whole other thing not to even teach your people. So these churches that don't stand for anything are churches that people um, don't want to be a part of. And so Jesus, um, sure, he has a small group now, but look, here we are. How many miles from Jerusalem are we? How many thousands of disciples are in the chain? Uh, the church has grown. It's done just fine. And so you don't talk people into salvation. You don't, you don't try to grease the wheels. It doesn't mean you want our tone to be godly and salted with grace. But you just speak the truth and people will come. People will be converted. God's word is sharp and God will add to his church. This is very, very confrontational here. And then uh, this beautiful answer. You got to love Simon Peter. He's the Babe Ruth of the apostles. Right. Babe Ruth has the most home runs, but he also had like some of the highest strikeouts. So when Peter swings, he swings hard and sometimes he strikes out. But here you have this beautiful confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Listen to this quote from Ryle. It's very encouraging. Ryle says, The question is one which every true Christian may boldly ask when urged and tempted to give up his religion and go back to the world. It is easy for those who hate religion to pick holes in our conduct, to make objections to our doctrine, to find fault with our practices. It may be hard sometimes to give them an answer. But after all, to whom shall we go? If we give up our religion, to whom shall we go if we give up our religion? Where shall we find such peace and hope and solid comfort as in serving Christ, however poorly we serve him? Can we better ourselves by turning our back on Christ and going back to our old ways? We cannot. Then let us hold on our way 
and persevere. I mean, isn't that encouraging? Where else are we going to go? Who else, who else makes sense? Who else teaches the truth? You know Buddha? Muhammad? Oprah? Even if you're not, you're not great. Even if your walk is full with a lot, of, a lot of dross. There's a lot of refining that needs to happen. Don't let those that mock you turn you away from the church. Turn you away from your Lord. Where else are you going to go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. This is where we come to feed. We're strengthened. And Peter's faith is great. It's very encouraging. May God strengthen our faith. And we have confessed this, right? That's why we're here tonight. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. That's a big deal. That's a big jump there. They had been following Jesus. They saw him as a prophet. You know, they knew something was going. They knew he was holy. Um, But this is him straight up saying, you are the promised Messiah, the anointed one. You're the, the seed of Eve, right? You've descended from Abraham. You are uh, the, the one that will sit on the throne of David forever and ever. It's, a, it's an incredible confession of faith. Earlier, not in this, uh, I think it's in Matthew, where when Peter says this, Jesus says, uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit of God. Saying, that's right. God is working in you, Peter, to give you that confession. Then again, he follows it up. This is kind of curious. So Peter gives this great confession of faith. And Jesus answered them. Not like, good job, Peter. That's not how John puts it here. He says, Jesus answered them. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? I, I must be some. I find this stuff very humorous. When I look at how the rhetoric goes, I just think of like this conversation playing out in real time. And me listening to it, how triggered I'd be by the way Jesus dealt with things. Like, why? Why would you say that? This guy just called you the Messiah. He says, we're not going to go anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go. Right? You're it. And Jesus says, one of you is a devil. That's his response in this text. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I think Jesus is warning Warning them, lovingly warning them, and also warning Judas. Just like God gave Pharaoh how many times to repent. There was a lot of plagues. Each time God was calling him repentance, he hardened his heart. You better believe that Jesus ministered to Judas. Called him repentance over here. This was his chance, right? Judas is wondering, how does he know? Does he know? Is he talking about me? And uh, so Jesus is constantly, confronting people and calling them to faith. So let's be like that. Let's confront each other in love. I know confront just sounds like it doesn't sound good. But confront can just be, hey, I noticed I noticed the way you talk to your wife. And she's the weaker vessel, brother. Right? It's disrespectful. You know, what's going on? I've been there before. You know, I notice that you're like missing a lot of things. Why are you missing a lot of things? Right? The things you've missed have strengthened and encouraged me. 
They've helped me. What's going on? Why are you doing that? You got something better going on? You know, uh, let's be willing to confront each other and call each other to believe God's word. And just let the word of God, this, what, the best thing you can give to people is God's word. And then let the chips fall where they may. Right? Give them God's word. That's why we don't need more folksy wisdom. I keep saying that. I just think of how people all have like these sayings. You know, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. Have you read Job? Right? He's covered in boils and he wants to die. His friends are not helpful. <laughs> he totally will give you more. He'll make a way of escape in a time of temptation. Right? He'll, he'll encourage you. So don't have folksy wisdom. Give him God's word. And uh, that, that's what our church needs if we do that. Our church will grow to the size that God wants it to be. There'll be good people here. They'll be loved. They'll be well-fed. I mean, that is a testimony that we want to have in Spartanburg, a city on a hill, right? A bright city where people can come and hear God's word. All right, let's pray.